you survive the ice apocalypse last night. <laughs> against my Bible study because it was all sleety, raining, snowy, slushy, and then I come outside this morning and it's a perfect day. But glad you're here. <clears throat> and we are in Leviticus chapter 5. We started chapter 5 last week, and this is one of those parts where if you're <clears throat> reading along, uh, the chapter breaks don't exactly fit well. For some reason, our English Bibles break chapter 5 after verse 19, which is strange, but the Hebrew text, chapter 5, doesn't start, uh, it, it goes all the way through what we have in chapter 6, verse 7. So really, it's, if you're reading, if you had a Jewish friend and you were reading a Jewish Bible, chapter 5 would be all the way through the first seven verses of chapter 6. So again, this is just kind of underscores the point we've made before, that chapters and verses don't matter in the Bible, and they really don't. They're just there to help people find their place when they're reading. Right? There's no spiritual value to the verses or chapters. So we're going to take the text as it stands because we're going to go through the last of the offerings that is described today. Oh my God. Sorry, it's a fly. He was liking lunch today. So chapter 5, <clears throat> it started with or, or picked up in the fourth of the offerings, types of sacrifices in Leviticus. And we looked at the first three, which were voluntary sacrifices. They were celebratory sacrifices. And then the last one, the one that we looked at last week, which is called the sin offering or the purification offering, that was for unintentional sins. That was for when someone did something that they either didn't fully realize what they were doing or they didn't mean to do it as a sin, as a violation of God's law. It was for actions that were that you wanted to make restitution for, uh, to have to receive forgiveness for, and so you'd offer the sacrifice, which was for purification. That's why it's called the purification offering. And it was it had the the idea of, of cleansing from sin, of purifying, of, of healing the disease or the the um, the contamination of sin, so to speak. That's the idea that was brought along with that one. This week, then, and we saw that you don't have to be a rich person to do that. I mean, I had the different, this is what you're going to offer, but if you can't afford to offer that, then you can offer this. If you can't afford to offer that, you can offer this. And if you really can't afford to offer any kind of animal, you can offer a grain offering instead. So there was this gradation that was built in so that anyone, no matter how rich or how poor, could come before God being purified, uh, cleansed from unintentional sins that they committed. Now then, we switch gears, and we look at down in verse 14, it says we're coming to the fifth offering, the fifth type of sacrifice in Leviticus, and this is the, some translations call it the guilt offering, others call it the restitution offering, in, in Hebrew it's just literally the guilt offering, it's the same word that's used for guilt, uh, but it has a, a different purpose. Verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, when a person commits a violation, and, and that, that's one word in Hebrew, commits a violation, it's ma'al, and it means to, to break faith or to, um, to act falsely or to act sacrilegiously. It has the idea of breaking covenant, um, like breaking a covenant agreement or doing something. So it's not just a random, like a speeding violation. It's, it's more of a, Falsehood is implied with it. 
deceit is implied, or, or, or using something you're not supposed to. <clears throat> You'll see what it means. When the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, when a person does this, commits a violation, and sins unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, he is to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value in silver according to the sanctuary shekel. It is a guilt offering. He must make restitution for what he has failed to do in regard to the holy things, add a fifth of the value to that, and give it all to the priest who will make atonement for him with the ram as a guilt offering, and he will be forgiven. So this is the idea that this, this first thing that this sin covers, <clears throat> that this offering covers, is sins against any of the Lord's holy things. Now why is this seems kind of random to put in here? Remember where we are. We're in Leviticus. We're at the beginning of the giving of the tabernacle, the institution of the tabernacle. And what's the tabernacle full of? God's holy things. It's full of all of the stuff we've seen, the sacrifices, the altar, the things you have to carry a certain way. Only the priests can touch this. Only the Levites can touch this. It's, it's all set up. So this is, this is built in of saying, here's what happens if someone misuses or falsely deals, treats, uh, misappropriates some of the Lord's holy things. These sacrifices, somebody takes more of the sacrifice than they're supposed to or doesn't give enough of a sacrifice than they're supposed to. If they cheat out, uh, the priests through giving less of a sacrifice and then this is how that can be restored so there's this idea of property and things that are in contention being misused or being withheld or being taken and used inappropriately then the the sacrifice for that is to take a ram <clears throat> to give it and it's got to be a certain value it's got to be according to the sanctuary shekel the priest would actually evaluate this sacrifice and, and it was, some people, later rabbis, I think, said that this is the one sacrifice that could be substituted for money because this sacrifice is all about repairing. That's why it's called the reparation offering. It's about repairing the breach that's been made with property pride, property theft, or property abuse. So this is sort of a interpersonal thing. And it starts off by saying, uh, applying it to God's stuff, the holy things of the Lord. Then it goes on, verse 17, if a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though he does not know it, he is guilty and will be held responsible. So this now, if anybody does something that, that they, they unintentionally violate any of the Lord's commands, this is now also the act of sacrifice that's gonna be given for when people don't even know what they've done wrong. The guilt offering, and the reason some people prefer the term the guilt offering is because this offering was provided as a means to assuage or to purify a guilty conscience. This is when if someone was guilty of something, they, they, they've broken God's law in, in something, but they may not even know it, that they have this feeling of guilt or this, you know, I've mistreated something or I... I, I I don't even remember, I know I've done something wrong, I just can't leave this nagging guilt that's eating away at me. There's something that I've done. This sacrifice was given for that as well. So it covers over misuse of God's things, it covers over breaking of the commandments and you don't even know it or realize it or there's something you've done but you can't pinpoint it. Uh, it's a very broad offering in this regard, but it's also seen as 
among the ancient people, it was seen as a blessing, a huge blessing. Because in the other cultures, throughout the ancient Near East, one of the main worries and concerns that people had was how to know if they had offended the gods. How to know if they had inadvertently done something that caused the gods to bring disfavor or punishment upon them. So you can read in, in texts from the ancient Near East all of these incantations or these rituals or these, these things you would have to do to try and hopefully uh, bring the favor of this God that you may have done something to offend back to the people. And so there would be times of, you know, in the, when there were times of panic or national crisis, you know, people would try to, what can we do? What can we offer the gods? What can we, how can we make this right? We haven't had rain in six months. We, we, we've had famine, our crops aren't growing, you know, natural disasters, whatever. Somebody must have done something wrong. Now there's all these rituals. How do we find out who did something wrong? Casting of lots and, and reading of animal entrails and all of these arts that people did in the ancient world to try to figure out what had happened, who they had offended, and how to make it right. So this is not something that preoccupies our minds today, but it's something that very much preoccupied the minds of the people in the ancient Near East. And God is building into his sacrificial system in Leviticus a means by which they can bring a guilt offering and that they can be assured if they bring this offering in good faith, if they present it, if they go through with the ritual in the tabernacle as a community or an individual, then they can be assured of their forgiveness for what this thing is that's nagging at their conscience. That they can be, they can receive this, this, uh, they can have their guilt lifted. And that's part of why this is called the guilt offering, as opposed to the other the sin offering, which is about purifying and cleansing. This is more about lifting and repairing. Repairing the breach between God and humanity that came about through ignorance, through willful or through un unintentional sin, through accidental flippancy or through misusing stuff. This was an offering that repaired. That's why there was the adding of the fifth to it. It was not just you bring the offering, but you also bring the offering and you add a fifth of its value to it as well because that is a token of repairing the breach that was caused. We'll see it in this next section in particular because it goes on There's another case for it. It says, um, Verse 18, he is to bring the priest a guild offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect, of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him for the wrong he has committed unintentionally, and he will be forgiven. It's a guilt offering. He has been guilty of wrongdoing against the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, this is chapter 6 in our Bible, but this is continuing on in the Hebrew Bible, chapter 5. The Lord said to Moses, if anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him or left in his care or something stolen, and that verb stolen is actually robbed. It doesn't mean like taken unaware. It means forcibly taken. Or if he cheats him or if he finds lost property and lies about it or if he swears falsely or if he commits any such sin that people may do. When he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must return what he has stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to him or the lost property he found or whatever it was he swore falsely about. He must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the owner on the day he presents his guilt offering. And as a penalty, 
he must bring to the priest, that is to the Lord, his guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any of these things he did that made him guilty. The guilt offering now also extends to cases where someone not violates the Lord's property, but also violates or cheats or abuses or swindles or takes someone else's property. This, is, this law, this offering applies not to someone who's been found guilty of this. Exodus told us the punishment for someone who's guilty. You know, if you steal, this was the punishment. This is not about, this is about someone who is not punished for doing these things. If someone's punished for it, they've made reparations, they've paid their guilt, and they, they uh, the sentence that they have to do is, has already been spelled out earlier in Exodus. This is for, I robbed someone, or I defrauded, or I cheated someone. And these terms used are like terms like, remember, this is before bank deposit safe boxes. This is before any of that stuff. If I had something really valuable, and I was going to pasture my flock on the other side of the uh, field for a few weeks, I would leave my valuables with somebody I trusted. They would watch it. If I come back and it's gone, then I, and I suspect that they've stolen it, I'd ask them, did you steal it? They'd say, no, I didn't. I could take it before the elders. The only defense that they would have is to swear by God that they didn't steal it. They'd take an oath. And then if they swear by God that they didn't steal it, then I would have to accept that because there's no proof, there's no eyewitness, I, I wouldn't have anything to do. So this then is where, this is describing a situation where that person would then become guilty and would be living in this state of guilt, but without punishment because there was no witness. This provides the means by which that person could make right what they had done. If they weren't caught, they, this is how they could come and confess their guilt and could restore the breach relationship. They would restore it by one, returning the property. Two, adding a fifth of its value for my trouble. So it couldn't just be like an interest-free loan. Like if I stole something, it inconvenienced someone. If I just give it back to them, then it's kind of like I got that for free. But it's like, no, no, you give it back to them and you have to pay a fifth of 20% of its value to the person to make it right, to repair and to, to, to pay for the inconvenience, to pay for the trouble, to pay for the broken relationship that resulted through this theft through this taking of someone else's things. And then, only then, after I confess that, after I restored their what I stole and added a fifth to it to make reparation, only then could I bring my offering and present it to the priest, and the priest would make atonement. So there has to be, for the guild offering, there has to be rest restoration between people when people are who are sinned against. When it was the Lord, you pay back the, add the fifth of the value and pay it to the priest, to the Lord directly. Because he's who you defrauded by misusing his things or by taking what wasn't yours from the tabernacle or whatever. You pay to him. If it's somebody else, I can't just do something bad to someone, sin against them, misuse their property, rob them, cheat them, swindle them. The word defrauding or, or swindling uh, has the idea of doing something that's legal but unethical. 
like withholding the wages for a worker who deserves their wages. If, you know, doing something like, like cheating someone, technically not a legal way, but still in a way that you know is immoral, they know is immoral, that hurts them. So this is for all of those type of offenses where you're, where you're hurting. Remember, this is Israel living in community. They're trying to, God's showing them, this is how you're going to be my community. And in community, people live together. When people live together, they have stuff in common that they have to use amongst each other. They have goods, they have products, they have items. They entrust things to one another, or they loan things to one another. They use, and there's a chance that they can misuse. And so to repair that, because nothing will fracture a community quicker than somebody being suspected of being a cheater, or a swindler, or, 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 or taking what's not theirs, or any of this stuff. So in order to do that, this sacrifice provides a way for those, uh, those interpersonal conflicts over property things to be paved over. And it's not through just a magic ritual. That's the key. It's not just a sacrifice. It's you pay the person back and you add a fifth to it, then you go sacrifice. Jesus picked up on this. Jesus said, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you realize your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Go back, be reconciled first to your brother, then come bring your gift before the altar. Because there's no repentance without reparation for the person who was wronged. And that's how it is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can say, I repent all day. You can feel sorry. I, you, know, you can feel remorse all day. But if you cheated someone, you have to make it right. And there's even later in, in, I think in Numbers or Deuteronomy, there's even a way for if the person dies, how do you make it right? If they died and before you can do it, then, then, then you would do something to their family. But in other words, it's ingrained in Hebrew law from the beginning that it's not forgiveness towards another person who you've wronged doesn't just happen by saying words and offering a sacrifice. It happens by repairing the relationship that's restored, by fixing that breach, then going and taking the sacrifice. The, the, the sacrificial system, this is the last one, the five sacrifices that, that could be offered in the tabernacle. All of them had to be had to be done from a truly repentant or celebratory or, or, or serious inward condition. It was never just about doing the motions, going through the motions. And that's something that if you're raised in a high church tradition, like, like if you come from Episcopalian or Catholicism or Eastern Orthodox or whatever, you may have just grown up over the years of like, you know, I light this candle, I go to confession, I do this, and I'm good to go. No, that's not true at all. That's what it devolves into. Well, this happened in the Old Testament as well. It devolved, by the time of the prophets, these sacrifices had devolved into meaningless rituals that the people would do. Amos gets onto Israel severely for offering these sacrifices and singing their songs and giving lip service to God and then turning around and trampling on the poor and defrauding the workers and the weak and the people in society that needed their generosity. So Amos in particular rails against Israel for this type of false piety that relies on ritual instead of the actual inward heart condition. Hosea does it as well. Uh, pretty much it's hard to find a prophet that doesn't condemn empty ritual. But at the same token, those of us who come from low church traditions where there isn't any of the fancy ritual, at the same token, we have to realize that that ritual, the, the prescribed means of going through these motions, was how God chose 
to give people a tangible way that they could be assured that they were forgiven and put back in right standing with him. Otherwise, if there's no tangible way of expressing it, then, then they are subject, they're, they're hostage to the whims of their emotions. And that's why you get people that every week are getting saved again and going up to the altar because they don't think it took the last time. Because there's no ritual, there's no something that, that declares once and for all, you are forgiven and things have been set right. So that's the value of ritual. That's the value of the tangible acts that we go through that are external. That in the low church tradition, people kind of err to the opposite extreme, and, and you can end up missing that. And then you become just a slave of your own emotions and your own, you know, what, what am I going to do here? I don't feel it this day. I must not be in right standing with God. This was a way where the two could come together. If your inward heart matched, if you were truly contrite over how you had cheated someone, and you went and you made it right with them, you did the prescribed method with them, then you come to the priest, you offer the sacrifice to the priest, then the priest would offer the sacrifice, there would be a meal, your communion with God and with your fellow man would be restored. That's how it was meant to work. That's how the tabernacle was meant to function. It was meant to restore and to, 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 to make sure that a state of, of peace, of well-being, of guiltlessness was maintained in the midst of Israel where God dwelt. That was what it was there for. That was what the mini Mount Sinai that would follow Israel around in the tabernacle. That's what it was. So whenever we're reading now, later in the Old Testament, as we go through and read, we'll see these offerings and these sacrifices being talked about. And we'll see how God condemns them when they're done falsely. We'll see the futility or the, the longing for something better than these sacrifices. Because these sacrifices can cover over sin, but they can't actually remove the thing that's generating the sinfulness. And this would be a condition that the prophets all the way through, up until the exile and even after, would, would long for is the thing that all these sacrifices would point towards, the thing that would come and not just take care of the effects of sin, but they would go into and root out the cause of sin and deal with it at the core. That's what this couldn't do. And Israel's history is going to be a history of learning that lesson, learning that the blood of bulls and goats can't cleanse or take away that inward fallenness that's plagued humanity since Adam and Eve first rebelled. But yet that's the promise that God gives, that, 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 that one day there will be this way that his covenant will be able to be kept. Right now his covenant is in a state where they can keep it, but it already takes into account that they're going to break it in many ways that they don't even realize. So it, it builds in a way that, that takes into account their human frailty, their human error. But there's going to be something coming in the far distant future that this will all point towards, which will get to the root of that problem. It will actually, where God actually says, I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart, not a hard heart that can, that can move and mold, that can follow my commandments. Then he says through Ezekiel, I'll put my spirit within you and I'll move you to keep my laws and follow my decrees. So right now they're in the state of God has provided provision for when they mess up. 
there's going to be a time where he's going to go deeper and do something more radical that actually gives them the ability to not mess up in these ways, to not do the things that break fellowship, that cause tension, that cause um, uh, resentment and animosity and all of that kind of stuff. So this last offering, the guilt offering, it was for a, a, a wide range of things, and it covered, it, it, it gave people a sense that their guilt had been repaired. That, their, that that state of guilt that they were in, whether it was through their conscience, just gnawing at them for something, that they don't know that, what it is exactly, but they know they did something wrong. It was a way of providing that means of assurance that they were back in right standing with God, and it was a means of repairing the damage that they had done amongst each other through mishandling, misusing, cheating, abusing one another. And there's a really interesting passage in Isaiah 53. Most people know Isaiah 53 as the, the Isaiah's message of the suffering servant, the promise of this, this coming servant who would do for Israel what Israel couldn't do for itself and who would be for the nations what Israel was always meant to be. And it was this figure who was sometimes spoken of as if he was the people uh, collectively, and then sometimes spoken of as if he was one of the people of Israel, and then sometimes spoken of as if he was an outsider who's helping Israel. So all of this in the servant songs of Isaiah, we read in 53, it comes along, and it's talking about him being uh, you know, bruised and afflicted and crushed for our iniquities. And then in verse 10, it says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The Lord will prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. One of the things that the servant of, of Israel would do, who we find out in the New Testament is Jesus, would be, verse 10, the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. So Jesus becomes, embodies this last sacrifice in Leviticus, this guilt offering. He is made to be the guilt offering, capital G, capital O, the guilt offering that repairs the breach between God and people, ultimately, that assuages the guilty conscience of any who come to him and who, who basically say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm in need of cleansing. I'm in need of my guilt to be removed. And instead of bringing a ram, instead of going through this ritual now, Jesus is the one who this was pointing to all along, who would come along and actually take all of this up and embody it in himself. So there's there's passages all throughout scripture where Jesus is seen as in some way fulfilling each of these five sacrifices that we've looked at since we started Leviticus. Each of these five sacrifices, the whole burnt offering, uh, the grain offering, called himself the bread of life, the offering, uh, the peace offering, the fellowship offering, the celebratory. Uh, the sin offering that was the tithe taken outside the camp and burned, uh, and then now the guilt offering, 
where, where the guilt is lifted. And in all of these ways, you can go throughout the book and see. You won't notice it if you don't know these offerings. If you don't know these sacrifices, if they're all foreign to you, then you, you read through and you miss it. You know, how many times have you read Isaiah 53? Probably just skimmed right over that. He will make him a guilt offering. But if you know what the guilt offering is, then you look at that and it has some more theological depth to it that we can appreciate and understand. So that's, that's why we're reading Leviticus, not just to get what Leviticus is saying for its own sake, although it's well worth it, but also so that when you hear these notes played in different keys in the rest of Scripture, then it'll take your mind back to what it was originally saying in Leviticus, and then it gives you a deeper understanding of what you're reading and what the authors, whether they're the later prophets or the New Testament writers, what they're actually saying. Now, the last thing to note as we leave is that these are the five sacrifices that you could offer. There's no sacrifices that are prescribed for intentional, what the, what the scripture calls high-handed or, or, or brazen sin. You, if you notice, in any of, none of these sacrifices cover murder. None of these sacrifices cover kidnapping or rape. None of these sacrifices cover open blasphemy against God. There were sins that the sacrificial system did not cover. And the only thing that could bring forgiveness of those was the sheer grace of God through a repentant and a broken heart and the hope that God might forgive those sins. But it was never a, a done thing like, yeah, no matter how bad your sin is, no matter whatever, we got a way to take care of that. No. There were some things, and that's why the psalmist will cry out about asking, pleading with God for forgiveness and restore my soul and cleanse my heart and all of this stuff because they realize just how egregious what they've done is and there's nothing they can do in terms of sacrifices but throw themselves at the mercy of God and beg for His forgiveness and hope that He listens. And this is a radical shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's something that the New Testament lifts up as Jesus being the forgiveness of any sins and the sins of the whole world and how in the new covenant that's something that the old covenant longed for the old covenant didn't have that assurance of forgiveness for even the worst of sins so that's part of the scandal of the gospel when read in light of the old testament sacrificial system so this is the end of this section where God is telling the people this is what you're going to do this is how you're going to use my tabernacle Next week, there's going to be a recap in chapter 6 for the priests. God's given the people the commands. He's told to Moses, and everybody hears it because it's right there. This is all taking place at the tabernacle when the glory cloud is descended. Next week, we're going to see him give the specific directions to the priest and summarize each of the sacrifices. Then the week after, he's going to say, now, now are you ready to start this thing? And so there's going to be this long process of ordaining the priest, and then God's presence is going to come in a new way, and it's going to be amazing. And then something completely tragic is going to happen because of human sinfulness. Uh, so there's your teaser. We're done for this week. Have a great week. And uh, there's plenty of food left if you want seconds. Otherwise, see you next week.